Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 183. Our citizenship is in heaven. And on the podcast this week, we are going to continue our look at this little heaven mini series that I've inserted on the podcast. And again, I've gotten a lot of interaction from you listeners, and I really appreciate that. Got a great rating and a review by one of the listeners on Apple Podcasts. Thank you very much for that as well. Um, as we dive in this week, I realized that several of my themes for this podcast are starting to overlap with some of the things that I'm doing in our church, which is especially exciting for me. It helps me to refine both. My sermon prep helps with the podcast and my podcast prep helps with my sermons. And I know our church benefits from that as well. And so I'm excited for us to get into this and I will kind of explain our way through as we go. But just without any more of an introduction, let's just jump right into it. So far in this series on heaven, we have seen that originally the heavens and the earth were connected. In the Garden of Eden, God's space and man's space overlapped. And we saw why this was so important to recognize because if this is how creation began with God's space and man's space overlapping, then we can know that God's focus behind new creation must be to return to that once glorious state, to a state where the heavens and the earth overlapped and where God's space was one with man's space. And we've seen in other episodes that in Jesus, this is exactly what has happened. So God's space has come down to the earth in the person of Jesus bringing heaven's blessings wherever Jesus went and through whatever he did. So in the heavens, sickness doesn't exist. So Jesus frequently healed people of their sicknesses or of their diseases, thereby in those moments showing the heavens taking over um, space in, in the earth. Or in the heavens, sin no longer has dominion. So Jesus frequently forgave people of theirs. Right In the heavens, all people are equals. So Jesus frequently ate with those who were unwelcomed at dinner parties, or in other words, were not welcomed, were not treated as equals because of their status or because of their sinful life or because of their choices. And so in the heavens, the enemy also has no authority. And so Jesus frequently delivered people from demonic oppression, right? Jesus is the one bringing the authority and as the one with the authority, he uses it to bless other people. That is basically the heavens at work on the earth. And so the heavens have come down to the earth in the person of Jesus and he has gathered around him followers who not only welcome him into their lives, but willingly choose to start living out their lives on earth as though they too were from the heavens. And this is the idea that I want to capture for this week's episode. And it's also the language that Paul uses in his letters to some of the churches when he talks about this idea. In fact, when we come to um, many of Paul's writings throughout the New Testament, this idea of heaven's reality shaping our lives here on earth is central to understanding much of what Paul writes. And what I want to do on this episode is just look at a handful of passages that make this really, really clear. So the first one I want to look at is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Paul tells us 
that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, According to Paul, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places now. He is reigning there right now, perfectly at rest and reigning over everything. Now, this is not incredibly difficult to wrap our minds around. In fact, we oftentimes think of Jesus' ascension. He ascends to the Father. He's at the Father's right hand. But even before we get to Jesus' ascension, Paul's talking about Jesus being seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. And the reason why I say before we even get to the ascension is because of something that Paul says about followers of Jesus in the very next chapter. In fact, it's something that sounds a bit audacious, especially when you start comparing the followers of Jesus and using similar language to describe them that you used when you described Jesus. Here's what Paul says in chapter 2, um, a passage that's very familiar to many Christians, or at least it was familiar to us when I was growing up in the church, although the part I'm about to quote is oftentimes either missed or overlooked or not understood. At least it wasn't understood by me as I was growing up in the church. But here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to hear what Paul is actually saying here. He's saying that believers in Jesus Christ have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we've been given a place of honor in God's domain or in God's space. And as Paul says to the Philippian Christians in chapter 3, our identity is now defined as a citizen of heaven. That's actually where I got the title for this week's episode, where Paul says in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Or as Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So as citizens of heaven, we are given access to heaven's resources now, to heaven's unhindered worship now, and complete access to the presence of God now. This heavenly reality now shapes our identity. And Jesus's way for the church to follow is to allow heaven's reality to shape their understanding of themselves and their place in the world more than they allow earth's reality to do so. So this is why Paul will exhort the Colossian Christians in chapter three of his letter. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
Now, this is a fascinating passage from Colossians chapter three. And several times Jesus refers, or I'm sorry, Paul refers to Jesus being, we are being, we have been raised with Christ. And because we have, we are to seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, right? And according to Ephesians, where are we? We are seated with him. So we are to set our minds there. We are to set our minds on the heavenly, in the heavenly places. We are to set our minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Because you have died, Paul says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So where Christ is, we are. What is true of Christ is true of us. Or we can think about it this way. Your geography determines your identity. Now, I'm from Ohio originally. I I have actually now lived in North Carolina for several years, but I am originally from the Midwest. And when I first moved to the South, it was a little bit of a culture shock. People in the South treat you differently. They uh, give a lot of niceties and pleasantries and yes, ma'am and and no, ma'am and yes, sir and no, sir and hey, sweetie and how are you? And people want to stop in the grocery store and, and talk to you for 10 or 15 minutes and no one seems to be as concerned about the time. When I went to the grocery store in Ohio, people were no no nonsense, no messing around. I mean, you kept your head down, you walked through the aisles, you got what you needed, you got through the checkout as quickly as possible and you got home. So there were differences, the identity of the people who live in the South versus those who live in the North, the geography of where you are from oftentimes shapes the way that you live. Now, that's a funny example. I live several hundred miles away, but you talk about going to another country. You talk about now in Paul's language of going to another world entirely. You're talking about heavenly reality and our identity coming from there and what it is like now to live in a place very, very foreign from there. But Paul is describing heavenly reality as that which is above, and he exhorts Christians to set their minds there. And so the relationship in Paul's mind between the heavens and the earth is spatial. It's not temporal. In other words, we are called to live out reality now based on an identity that is rooted in a different sphere or a different realm, not one that is rooted in a different time. You know, the one that you may have grown up hearing about, the whole earth now, heaven later idea. So this is how Jesus can exhort the Christians in Smyrna, for example, in the book of Revelation, that he knows their poverty, but they are rich. You see, from an earthly perspective, this church had no resources. From heaven's perspective, however, they were the recipients of every spiritual blessing. Hence, they were rich. For the Christians in Smyrna to embrace Jesus's words to them, they have to consciously choose to understand themselves in their heavenly reality, not in their earthly one. They have to apply what is true of them in the heavenly places to their understanding of themselves on the earth. Now, as an aside and something that I have spent years of my life trying to wrap my heart and mind around, this is how all questions of identity are addressed within the Christian faith. Who are we in Christ? What is true of us as a result of what Jesus has done in, for, and through us? And how does that shape the way we live our lives out on the earth? 
So the heavens and the earth are two different spheres of reality. They are two different spaces, if you will, out of which to live our lives. In a very real sense, they are two different spheres of the same reality simultaneously. They are not to be understood along the spectrum of a timeline where we live on the earth now, but in the future we will live in heaven. This is not the Bible's understanding of these two spheres. The earth now, heaven later idea is a teaching that has not helped the church at all. In fact, it has brought more harm than good. And this is mainly because it weakens our understanding of who we are in Christ by relegating heaven to some distant future. And it weakens our understanding of what we are called to do and who we are called to be in the present because it does not take heaven's relevance to us in the present seriously enough. So let me just give you one example of this about how this actually works out practically. In James chapter 3, which is one of the most practical books in the New Testament you could pick up and read, we read this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, what's James saying? Well, he's saying that there are two kinds of wisdom at work in our world, and each one has its roots either in the earth or in the heavens, what James calls from above, right? And he's exhorting his readers to embody the wisdom that comes from the heavens in their daily interactions on the earth. That is how these two spheres are at work simultaneously. And yes, James actually means for Christians to embody the reality that comes from the heavens or the wisdom that comes from the heavens, even when those around you are embodying the wisdom that comes from the earth. We, we have this thing that stumps us quite a bit, and it just stumps me every bit as much as it stumps you. Pretty sure it stumps me oftentimes even more. And that is that when somebody is being irrational or someone is being agitating or annoying or impatient with us or accusatory toward us, we feel like responding to them in kind. We feel like the irrational arguments or the yelling or the disdain or the name calling or the backbiting or the gossiping or whatever, when somebody has the audacity to do that to us, we feel like it is only appropriate and only fitting that we would respond in the same way. And when we do that, James is saying it's things that are coming down from jealousy and selfish ambition, right? He's saying, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly. So it's coming from the earth, unspiritual and demonic. J James will go on later in, in his book to talk about the words that we can speak actually breathing hell into our workplaces or into our family dynamics or into our churches, God forbid, because of the type of way we choose to use language. 
And what James very clearly is pointing out is that there are times when people around us are not using good reason. They're not open to reason. They're not gentle. They're not sincere. They're not impartial. They're not pure. They're not focused on peace. And they're certainly not full of mercy. But James says the wisdom from above is all of these things. And the way to demonstrate that the wisdom you are drawing on for the way you live your life is coming from the realm of the heavens is when it manifests itself in these ways. Not always how we think about it, but this is how the New Testament wants us to think about it. Now, we actually see this thing at work in the life of Jesus himself, okay? So in John 13, for example, in a passage very familiar to many of us, Jesus stoops to wash his disciples' feet, okay? It's an act that from earth's perspective anyway, feels beneath many of us. Jesus, as we all know, is the master He should not be washing the feet of his disciples. But of course, this is how things are viewed from an earthly perspective. The master is above his disciples, right? He's more important than they are, etc. But that's not heaven's perspective. And in the opening verses of John 13, John explains to us Jesus's mindset as he prepares to do the unthinkable, right? As he prepares to actually wash his disciples' feet and shock all of them and all of us in the process. And here's what John says, John 13, one to four. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now, according to verse 3, where it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, that's what I want to focus in on for just a second. Jesus knew what had been given to him by God. He knew where he was from, where his identity was rooted, and where, because of all of this, he was eventually headed, right? He was eventually headed back to God. And with all of this knowledge, he acted out this identity by stooping to wash his disciples' feet. So two, two thoughts here. First, Jesus doesn't exploit his position so that others serve him. The fact that the father had given all things into his hands could have very easily led Jesus to adopt an entitlement mindset with his disciples. Think about it. He'd been given authority over everything. And as such, how easy to expect others would treat him accordingly. But Jesus doesn't do this. And by doing the exact opposite, in fact, he demonstrates that authority rooted in the heavens manifests itself through service, not through being served. But secondly, Jesus acts out this service toward his disciples by, as we've looked at already, consciously choosing to understand himself in his heavenly reality, not in an earthly one. From earth's perspective, masters don't serve slaves. It's the other way around. Ah, yes, but Jesus isn't acting out of an earthly perspective. He's acting out of a heavenly one. 
But in order to do this, he needs to focus on that heavenly identity, who he is in the heavenly places, what he's been given, what's waiting for him there, etc. And his ability to act in one sphere while understanding his true self in another is what enabled him to quite literally change the world. And this is what he calls us to do as his followers. Even in Revelation 13, we are told that the beast is allowed to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, it's fascinating that John not only refers to God's people or to God's dwelling as people, but that those people are in heaven. Now, this is not, as some would conclude with the book of Revelation, imagining that this is a futuristic reality where the Christians have been raptured and are now dwelling in heaven. That's not what the book of Revelation is teaching, and it's certainly not what this means here. The reason we know this is because several New Testament passages speak of Christians being the temple of the living God, right? 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we've already seen, several other New Testament passages speak of those same Christians residing in the heavenly places, right? Ephesians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 3. But here, Revelation 13 puts both ideas together referring to God's dwelling as people who dwell in heaven. It's brilliant, really. It's absolutely brilliant. And the way Revelation encourages us to to, um, overcome or to conquer in our faithfulness to Jesus is to see reality from heaven's perspective and know what it is that we are really up against as we go through temptations and struggles and trials on the earth. Revelation always is hoisting us up to the heavens to show us what reality looks like from God's perspective so that when we are thrust back down into reality as we know it on the earth, we live out an identity from the heavens on the earth and we live out our identity the same way Jesus did, having come from the heavens and living on the earth. And spoiler alert for the book of Revelation, the way we conquer, the way we overcome, the way we are victorious is the same way Jesus was, and that is as a lamb. Now, as a lamb would be much more likened to the descriptors of wisdom that comes down from above from the book of James when he talks about pure, gentle, peaceable, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere, open to reason, very spirit-like characteristics, if you will. And this is exactly what he wants us to be like. And so to sort of sum it all up, when Jesus came to the earth, he brought the heavens with him. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared to the entire world or God declared to the entire world that Jesus's heavenly cruciform life teachings and death is what is considered truly righteous and worthy of resurrection life. Jesus then ascends to his father, but not before promising that he would not leave his disciples as orphans, but that he would come to them. When the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples in the book of Acts, these words of Jesus come true. So what do they mean? They mean that in Jesus's absence, 
His followers now carry on his task of bringing the heavens to the earth, of living out the realities of the kingdom of heaven for all the world to see what the God of the heavens is really like and what following him does to transform our lives and the lives of those in our communities. And they are empowered to do so by God's very own spirit, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit who, interestingly enough, bears fruit that sounds an awful lot like James lists of the wisdom that comes down from above, pure, peaceable, gentle, full of mercy. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Four of the nine characteristics James includes in his list of the wisdom that comes down from above. Add to it love, add to it self-control, add to it a few others, and you have the work of the Spirit, the bringer of wisdom, the embodiment of the person of Jesus in the lives of his people. God's ultimate wisdom has come down from above in the person of Jesus. And now by his Spirit, God's people are called to live their lives by the wisdom that comes from above in their dealings with one another on the earth. And it is in this way that we testify to the kingdom of the heavens and bear witness to the God who brought this kingdom for the blessing and redemption of the world. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It means that our true identity, what we believe most to be true about ourselves comes from what Jesus tells us is true of us in the heavenly places. It has much less to do with what others think of us on the earth, what we think of ourselves, what struggles we are going through on the earth, whether we measure up to other people, how we choose to treat them when they mistreat us, and on and on and on. The kingdom of the heavens overlaps with the kingdoms of this world and as citizens of heaven, right? When Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, we are now ambassadors representing heaven and the way the world works in the heavens while we live on the earth. We are citizens of another place. We are citizens of another realm, And what that means is that the way we testify to the goodness of God in the world and the way that we testify to the goodness of Jesus in the world, and so that the way that we show the world what the gospel of the kingdom is actually like is when we willingly choose to live out heaven's realities on our dealings, um, in our dealings on the earth. This is what it means. And so we need to surround ourselves with talk of the fruit of the Spirit. And we need to surround ourselves with conversations regarding the wisdom that comes down from above. And we need to look at what the New Testament says when it talks about being spiritual. And we need to realize that we are called to be followers of the Lamb. 
And the way that Jesus chose to embody reality as it exists in the heavens was through service, not through being served. And it was Jesus equaling or leveling the playing field by spending his time with the sinners that many of the so-called righteous people felt were a blight on God's views of blessing for their nation. So when, when people think that God is going to you know, punish us for our disobedience, what many of the religious people did, mainly the Pharisees, were attempt to tighten up the reins on righteousness and demand that everybody in the nation abide by the righteous standards of their understanding of the scriptures so that God would be pleased enough with the people to bless them once again. Paul was a front runner. Saul, as his name was before he met Jesus, was a front runner in attempting to do this. So what was Paul doing before he met Jesus? He was attempting to snuff out this heretical teaching that believed that this guy from Nazareth named Jesus who spent all his time with tax collectors and sinners was just a blight on God's kingdom and was, was you know, deserved the, the just death that he received at the hands of the Romans um, and, and the curse that God must have placed on him as a result of his wayward living. And Jesus and any of the followers of Jesus that, that Saul interacted with needed to be snuffed out. Why? Because they were getting in the way of God bringing his blessings to the world. And so what happens when Saul meets Jesus? He sees in Jesus that it is precisely the opposite of what Paul thought when the heavens come to the earth. That Jesus embodied the weakness of God and that in fact was strength. You see on earth, we seem to think that it's selfish ambition and power and who has the authority, but heaven doesn't operate that way. And Paul encourages the, the churches to whom he writes not to operate in that way either. So our citizenship is in heaven. We now act out of an identity from the heavens on the earth. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what it means to follow Jesus and be the spirit-filled people who are continuing to spread the good news of the kingdom of the heavens while we live our lives out on the earth. Now, I will address questions. I will address concerns. We are not finished with our look at the heavens. Someone wrote me not too long ago, fairly upset about some of the episodes and saying, I now think that Everything I've been taught, people were pulling the wool over my eyes and teaching me lies from the very beginning. And I, I, um, I don't want anyone to get discouraged when they listen to what I'm saying here on the podcast. Many people do not understand the differences from the fact that the New Testament communicates heaven and earth as overlapping realities. Many people genuinely and honestly mistake the earth now heaven later idea because that is what they were taught. So I'm not here to rub anyone's face in bad teaching. I'm not here to disrupt anyone. The, the main frustration that this listener was experiencing after listening to several episodes was the fact that they want to know that their loved ones, are, they're going to see them once again. They want to know that actual justice is going to take place in the earth. And what I am not saying is that the heavens don't exist. 
I'm not saying that at all. In fact, the book of Revelation simply makes it very, very clear we're not going to escape the earth. That's never been God's intention. Rather, God's intention is that he will fully invade the earth with the presence of the heavens. And yes, we will be reunited with those that we love that we have since lost because they've died. It's simply the direction that we are headed that I'm going to challenge. Instead of the idea being Christians leaving the earth and floating up or going up to some disembodied heaven, the Bible's story is a reuniting of the heavens and the earth. All of the hopes, all of the expectations, all of the longings that we all have for justice to be restored, for judgment to take place, for salvation and restoration and reuniting with people that we love, all of those things and more are true. It's just I want us to embrace them as true the way the Bible communicates them to us, not the way some of our traditions have done so. And so in weeks to come, we will look at the popular rapture teaching, some of where it comes from, and some of the passages that some hold to that believe the rapture is taught by the Bible, and what I think the Bible actually teaches. And then we will look at the book of Revelation. I taught on some of these topics years ago when we went through the book of Revelation. I'll review some of those notes, maybe even refer you back to an episode or two, but we will repeat some of what we looked at there so that we can understand the way God is truly aiming to restore all things. But I want you to see the coming of Jesus as the first installment of the eventual completed restoration. And in Jesus, the first installment was part of the heavens coming to the earth. The complete installment, the completed picture is the rest of the heavens completely invading the earth and creating a new heavens and a new earth. This again, I will flesh out for us in the weeks to come. I skipped a week last week, I know, and I thank you for being patient as, we, as we're working our way through this. I had an unexpected funeral I needed to do. Um, I guess most funerals are unexpected, right? We don't anticipate any one of our loved ones or friends or family um, dying at any point. But when that came up, the funeral itself was on a Thursday, and I, I spent the first half of the week with the family and preparing for that service. And so I do not know what will happen in each week to come based on my schedule and what's happening with my family. Sometimes I need to miss a week, but thank you for being gracious. We've had, I think, almost a record number of people who've tuned into this last episode. So if you have shared this with a friend, thank you for doing that. It is fun to see the podcast um, slowly growing. That's always encouraging. But again, from heaven's perspective, numbers don't tell the full story. I don't want to get caught up into comparing the size of this podcast with another, although I'm often tempted to do that. Rather, I just know that I'm hopefully encouraging you, as many of you encourage me, and will continue to do that as we work our way through this little mini-series. So that's all the time I have for this week. Thank you for tuning in, and I will talk to you next time.